Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. As you know, we're in this ongoing series on the epistle of 1 John. Uh, today is part 13. Uh, we're going to finish looking at chapter 3 uh, today and look at the theme, as it says on the overhead, no condemnation. So it took me to John 3, uh, 1 John 3, beginning in verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Yeshua the Messiah, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who keep his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know by the spirit he gives us. Amen. Now, this text might not seem obvious on the surface, but one of the other things that this passage is actually about is about prayer uh, and what happens uh, in prayer. So, for example, 1 John 3.19, it says uh, on the overhead again, 1 John 3.19, this is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. What does that mean? There's a problem here that, that John is raising, the problem of a restless heart. Uh, a, a, a difficulty in the heart, a, a condemning heart. Our hearts are condemning us. Uh, there, there's guilt. Uh, there, there's accusation. But where does that arise? The text says it arises in the Lord's presence. Wow. Well, what does that mean? First John three twenty one says, Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God, and we receive from him anything we ask. That's talking about prayer. We're asking God for things. Why? Because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. So do you see the issue? The text says, if our hearts don't condemn us. So the issue is, we've got to get by this condemning heart. When we come into his, into his presence, if the truth be known, we often feel a sense of condemnation. And we have to get by that. We have to get over that. We have to find a way of, of assuring ourselves. We have to deal with the condemnation so we can go on. And do what? The text says that we can go on and pray, to ask for things from the Lord, uh, things that we are in need of. Uh, what this is telling us is that when you pray, if you draw near to God and pray truly from a foundation of knowing him uh, and, and keeping his commands and doing what pleases him, then something happens that's profoundly serious uh, and also, ironically, deeply troubling. Indeed, one of the ways you can tell you you haven't just prayed uh, in some general way, but you've actually sought to, to truly pray, as, as the Bible defines to truly pray, the way you can tell you've truly prayed and actually moved toward the real God, uh, toward his presence, is that you've experienced the trauma of a condemning heart. Now, I know this sounds counterintuitive, but we're going to look at this in detail. And I want us to look at four things about prayer in this passage uh, on the overhead. Uh, number one, prayer is universal. Everybody prays to some degree. Number, number two, true prayer is approach. 
Uh, it's all about the proper approach. Number three, true prayer is also traumatic. And then four, true prayer requires some kind of assurance. So first, prayer is universal. The Bible tells you to pray properly, to really seek the Lord with a proper motive, and not just to fulfill your own desires. And it also says to pray often, to pray continually in faith, to never give up. But the Bible rarely talks directly about the need to pray. Why? Because it assumes everyone prays. And I would propose that everyone here today, whether you believe in God or not, whether you're religious or not, you've prayed also. And in fact, you do pray. Surveys and polls reveal that regardless of what you say you believe about God, you pray. Everybody prays. Uh, There's an assumption in this text that everybody prays. We're going to talk about what what true prayer is and and, and what it does and how you're, you're supposed to react But first, you have to realize that the Bible teaches that everyone prays. Everyone tries to pray. Everyone seeks. Remember the old adage, there's no atheists in foxholes? Whenever you read about someone, for example, being pulled out of the ocean, having been lost at sea, and then rescued, and they interview them, often they'll say, you know, I don't know if I believe in God or not, but I prayed my head off this last week before I was rescued. So what does that prove? It proves this uh, on the overhead. It proves that prayer is a universal reflex of the human heart. And you pray to the degree that you're in touch with your humanity. The more human you know yourself to be, the more you're going to pray. Now, Back in the garden, the serpent came and said to Adam and Eve, you've got to cut loose from the Lord uh, if you you want to be his God. Don't believe what the Lord says. Uh, You can take charge of your life. You're in control. You can have it all. Now, that lie soaked into the human heart, our heart. Uh, It dropped in there. It seeped in deeply. And so many people don't believe they're they're human, that they're mortal. You know, for example, whenever sadly there's a teenager, a funeral for a teenager, all the teenager's friends, you know, come to the funeral, and there's an amazement that there's a dumbfoundedness, but generally not a lot of illumination because they think they're immortal, there's an autobiography uh, about a guy who used to be an old rock and roll star, uh, Dion. Uh, anyone old enough to remember Dion and the Belmonts? Few of you are. <laughs> His biggest hits in the late 50s and, and 60s were the uh, Runaround Sue, uh, The Wanderer, A Teenager in Love. In the late 50s, he was touring the Midwest as one of four acts. The other three were, were Buddy Holly, uh, The Big Bopper, and Richie Valance. Uh, and they would move from town to town with his tour bus. Uh, And one night, Buddy Holly says, I'm tired of these bus trips. Uh, Let's fly. Uh, It'll be $35 a piece, and we can fly, and then actually have some time to to relax before the next concert. The Big Bopper, he did Chantilly Lace, and Richie Balance, he did La Bamba, uh, and Buddy Holly, he did Peggy Sue and hundreds of other hits. Uh, They decided to fly. But tragically, the plane crashed, and they all died. But Dion, he said, well, $35, that's too expensive. I'll take the bus. And he survived. And in his autobiography, Dion, who was only 19 years old at the time and already a heroin addict, uh, he says when he got to the motel and he realized that they they were all dead, he said, I felt sad, but I was 19 and I felt immortal. Uh, I thought I could handle the heroin. Uh, And even though my three best friends were only in their 20s, all died, I just felt like it could never happen to me. Uh, 
Well, when you're young, he writes, you just don't believe you're human. You just don't believe you're mortal. You believe you're as God. And it takes a long time for it to sink in that you're not. Eventually, you finally realize you are mortal. You know, it finally sinks in. But it's the nature of the human heart to start out in life not believing you're going to die someday. And as a result of that, the natural man doesn't have much interest in prayer. When you start to get in touch with reality, when you're out in the ocean stranded on a raft, uh, you're finally seeing what you really are. You're mortal. You're vulnerable. You're human. You're not God. And to the degree you realize this, you'll find your heart just naturally praying. Why? Because that's what you were built for. Uh, And that ought to tell you something. It ought to tell you something about what your heart was built for. The fact of the matter is, if you don't pray much, if you seldom pray, if you never call out to God, if you consider prayer boring, you haven't come to terms yet with your humanity, with who God made you to be. You haven't grown up yet. You you still don't know who you are. You're still like that young Dion, a heroin addict. All his friends died. He could have been on that plane, and yet it still wasn't real to him. He felt immortal. He felt like, this could never happen to me. So that's point number one. Prayer is universal. Everybody prays. Everybody will pray. Uh, Everyone eventually will pray. You have prayed. You will pray. And since that's inevitable and important, let's figure out how to do it right. So number two on the overhead, prayer is approach. We have a wonderful little definition of prayer right here in our text. Uh, We said that everyone prays. Everyone needs to, to cry out to the Lord. Everyone will pray at some time, but what's the right way to do it? And it's described right here. First, we're told, we're told prayer is to go into God's presence. Look at 1 John 3.19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. To pray is to go before the Lord, to be in his presence. 1 John 3.21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. We go before him, we enter his presence, and we pray. Now, this is a really key concept. Many people think of prayer as as an exchange of information. You know, I put up a prayer. Uh, You you say your prayers. Uh, People, you come to the Lord when? When they were in trouble on the overhead. A lot of people view prayer as an exchange of information. No. Real prayer is not information on information, but a life on a life. Real prayer is coming into the presence of God, seeking the presence of God, seeking a personal audience. A lot of people see prayer like sending a text uh, or an email or a a telegram post. You're just sending information. You've got a need. You've got a request. It's like filling out an application. Everyone's, uh, or even making a quick cell phone call uh, when you don't actually talk to the person. You just leave a voicemail message. In fact, Often, when you make a call, you don't want to actually have a conversation, do you? You prefer a voicemail message. (laughs) And it's the same way in prayer. Most people don't want to actually commune with the Lord. They just want to send the information. They don't want a personal interaction. And that speaks volume about their lack of a real personal relationship with Yeshua. That's not real prayer. Now, when you send a text or an email or a signal post or even a voicemail message, 
Because it's in essence a monologue, you maintain being totally in control. So for example, uh, you write an email, you can be listening to music at the same time you're doing it, right? Uh, you cannot even be dressed yet or, or shaved or your teeth brushed, and you can still write a, a wonderful email. Even when you're on your cell phone, you can be watching TV in a text or an email or a signal or even on the phone, you can hide who you are very easily. You can purport to be someone that you're not. Like I'm told people do on those dating apps, uh, for example, those app profiles. <laughs> but in a personal audience, when you're with someone in person, on the one hand, it means that you're totally attended to uh, and seen for who you are. You can't hide who you are. You have to be presentable. You have to have be dressed and showered, your teeth brushed. You can't be watching TV or on your cell phone while you're talking to him or her. You're no longer unilaterally in control. You can't as easily spin things or put on airs or pretend to be somebody you're not. So on the one hand, you're attended to. On the other hand, you have to also give a complete attendance and attention to the person you're talking to one-on-one. Now, you don't have to do that when you're sending a text. You don't have to do that when, when you're typing an email. You don't have to do that with, with a voicemail message. But when you have a personal audience, it's a total thing, requiring your full, undivided attention. And that's what prayer is supposed to be on the overhead. In real prayer, you give your full attention and you get full attention. Now, what does it mean to come into God's presence? At the end of the book of Job... God appears to Job, and it's a whirlwind. And Job says this in Job 42, verse 5. He says, I've heard of you. I heard of you with my ears, but now I see you with my eyes. And I repent in dust and ashes. Job is sensing the presence of God. What does it mean to be in God's presence? Again, on the overhead. You're in the presence of God when God becomes the governing reality in your life. When things stop being abstract, you might intellectually know God loves you, but when you're before him, you experience his love. You might know God is powerful, but when you're before him, you personally sense his power. You might know he's sovereign intellectually, but when you're before him, his sovereignty governs the way you see things, governs the way you feel. I told this story once before, but it fits so well here. Messianic rabbi friend of mine told me about this 18-year-old girl uh, in his, his shul's youth group. And she came to him for counseling because she was depressed. Uh, and she said to the rabbi, I know God loves me, but what good is that if I don't have a boyfriend? <laughs> I know he loves me. I know Yeshua died for me. I know I'm, that I'm a daughter of the king. I know that I'm guided and cherished by the king of the universe. But what good is that if I don't have any dates? Now, these are both facts. She knows God loves her and Yeshua died for her, and she has no dates. No guys are asking her out. Two sets of facts. But before which one of these two sets of facts is she really living? In the presence of which of those two sets of facts is she living? Which facts are governing her life? Which are the most real to her? Which set of facts is governing the way she sees everything? Both sets of facts were true. God loves me. Boys won't ask me out. But the first was only on audio, while the second was on video. <laughs> the first was in black and white. The second was in full color. 
The first truth was just intellectual information. God loves me. The second one, boys, filled her mind and her vision and her soul. David says this in Psalm 16, verse 8. I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You show me the paths of life. And your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. David was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he set the Lord always before him. And therefore David was not shaken. He was not moved by bad circumstances. His soul rested secure in the hope of the Lord. What is David doing? He says, in essence, I'm disciplining myself to let the Lord and who God is and what he's done govern me. And when I do that, nothing shakes me. Nothing shakes me. I shall not be moved. For your right hand, O Lord, there's fullness of joy. God says to David, I will never leave you or forsake you. David knows that. David also knows the the enemy can cut off his head. Now, which of those two truths does he live before? Which one is he in the presence of on the, on the overhead? You see, real prayer is not sending a text or an email. Prayer isn't just sending up information. Prayer is having a personal audience with the Lord. I seek his presence. Uh, I want to see him. Uh, and that means I want his reality to overshadow me. I want it to come upon me. I want this reality to fill my vision. You see, when you're on the cell phone, you can only hear, not see, not be in the presence of the other person. You can have your kids in front of you, distracting you. You can have the TV on. You can be looking at all sorts of other things. But in an exclusive personal audience, that's totally different. Prayer is not sending a text. No, prayer is giving your full attention. Uh, it's single-mindedly seeking his presence. And here's, and here's the frightening part. It's also getting his full attention. So when you say, well, I know I'm sinning here. I know I'm sinning over there. I know that I'm, this I'm, do, don't, thing I'm doing is wrong. But, but I'm going to pray to God. If you do that without thinking too much about all the other things you're doing that you know God does not want you to do, uh, but you have a need, so you're going to put a prayer up there. That's just like sending a text on the overhead. Real prayer is coming before Yeshua and before the Father. And they come before the Lord means what? means he sees you. And it's a total thing. You're transparent before him. He sees the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. And you're vulnerable. You can't come before the Lord just with information. You've got to go with your whole self. You can't just walk in and say... Lord, I want to talk about just this one thing. Uh, I set the agenda. Here's the agenda for, for our meeting together. No. <laughs> you cannot do that. You, you, like, like it's a text or an email or a social media post. Uh, you, you can make in, in a social media post or text or an email, you can make a person attend to just one thing, one little thing about you uh, of your choosing. You can even fool them about who you are. You can purport to be somebody you're not. But that's not prayer. On the overhead. Prayer is giving your full attention and getting your full attention. Uh, giving your full attention to the Lord 
uh, and getting his full attention. It means to be vulnerable. It means to allow yourself to be examined on the overhead. Real prayer just doesn't go in with, with my requests. It says, yes, I have requests, I have needs, but I also have a life to lay before you. Real prayer is not just laying your request before the Lord, but laying your whole life. Prayer isn't just something you do for five seconds a day. You, know, you, know, you can pray while you're driving or, or walking or doing the dishes or, or laundry, but I purport this to you that that's only effective if you first establish the presence of God in your life. On the overhead, real prayer is absorbing. It takes everything. This kind of prayer makes you sweat. This kind of prayer takes time. Getting to know, that's just like getting to know somebody. Really know them. Takes time. This kind of prayer takes your total concentration and attention. You're coming before the king of the universe. Real prayer is to lay your life before the Lord. And to let him examine you. And to examine yourself. It's to say to the Lord, I not, only, I not only have my request that I lay in front of you, but I lay everything in front of you. I lay my entire life in front of you. It's to say, Lord, I want, to be, I want you to be the governing presence uh, and the force of my life and in my life. That's biblically-based prayer. What a wonderful description of prayer that, that John's giving us here. So on the overhead, number one, prayer is universal. Number two, it's all about the proper approach. It's, it's not just throwing out information, but it's coming into his presence. Number three, prayer is also traumatic. Verse John three nineteen. This then is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Why do our hearts condemn us? Because he is holy and we are not. And we have gone into his presence. Have you ever gone into a, one of those greeting card stores, like a, like a Hallmark store, and checked out the religious section? See what the religious sentiments and sensibilities are, are like in America today? When you check out these, these greeting cards, you get things like what? Folded hands in prayer, lots of pastels, stained glass windows, beams of light coming through the windows, Whenever there's any reference to God, that's the kind of thing you get. Uh, and the cards often say things like, near to God. And you've got these pastel colors and perfumes and doves and praying hands, uh, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, <laughs> warm and cozy feelings, near to God. Ah, But that's utterly the opposite of what the Bible says. It's the actual experience of those who come into God's presence. Coming into the presence of God is always traumatic. In fact, one of the ways you can tell you're getting near the real God is, is that your heart condemns you. Your heart doesn't say, ah, how sweet it is, how wonderful it is. We by the fireplace, praying near to God. No, not at all. Just look at the biblical examples of those who come into the presence of God. Look at Isaiah. Isaiah is like a lot of us. He went into the synagogue or the temple one day. And the last person he actually thought he would meet was God. <laughs> but he did. And when Isaiah encounters the living God, what does he say? Isaiah 6, 5. Woe is me, I cried. I'm ruined. I'm a, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When Job finally gets his audience with God, he cries out, 
What does he cry out? Job 42, verse 5. My ears have heard you, I've heard of you, but now my ears have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. When Habakkuk complains to God and finds himself in God's presence, he says in Habakkuk 3.16, My heart pounded, my lips quivered, rottenness entered my bones, and my legs trembled. When Peter uh, encountered Yeshua uh, and saw the greatness and the glory of the divine Messiah, he cries out in Luke 5, verse 8, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Why all these traumatic reactions of being in God's presence? Because the closer you get to the light, the more you see how dirty you are. The more you encounter God's holiness, the more you see what you are not. When you look in a fully lit mirror, you see all your imperfections, every last little zit <laughs> on the overhead. Really good light shows you your impurity. The closer you get to the real God, the holy God, the pure God, you'll experience the trauma of his holiness. That's one of the ways you know you're in his presence. Your heart will condemn you. Why? Because the closer you get to the standard, the more you see how far short you fall. Lady Macbeth, she went insane with a condemning heart. (laughs) She couldn't metaphorically or, or, or psychologically Get the blood off of her hands. Escape from, from the blood guilt of the murder she'd committed. She'd cry out to no avail, out, out, damn spot. And then Macbeth, her husband, he says this to the doctor on the overhead. He says, canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow? And raise out the written troubles of the brain? With some sweet, oblivious antidote. Cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. Macbeth asks, what is the sweet, oblivious antidote for a mind mad with guilt, for a condemning heart? You get near to God and you're going to have a condemning heart. It's going to condemn you. It's going to say, oh, wait, you call yourself a believer? What about the golden rule? Why aren't you loving your neighbor as yourself? How can you harbor the thoughts that you harbor? What if those around you really knew who you are? What a hypocrite. Those thoughts will arise and accuse you. And on one level, that's a good sign because a rank non-believer wouldn't even have these thoughts in the first place because they wouldn't care about such things. But you get near to God, you start to feel the trauma of of the divine encounter. So if you start to really seek God, you're going to start to see your sin. You're going to see your flaws. You're going to see how far short you fall. And the overhead, this brings us to our last point. So number one, prayer is universal. Number two, it's about approaching God in his presence. Number three, it's traumatic. And now number four, prayer requires assurance. First John three nineteen. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. You've got to have a way to set your heart at rest in his presence. 1 John 3.20, next verse. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. If your hearts condemn you, and if you are a true Yeshua follower, remember what 1 John 1.9 says. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Why? Why can he do? Why can he cleanse us? How does this happen? 
Because we're told this in 1 John 2, verse 1. Dear children, I write to you so you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a paraclete, an advocate with the Father. Yeshua the Messiah, the righteous one. He is the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, what if you know this, but you still say, well, I still can't forgive myself. My heart condemns me. I can't forgive myself. I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. I can't get rid of that damn spot. This text tells us if, if, if that you are there for promoting your own heart over God, you're not innocent. You're not helpless. First John tells you if you confess your sins, the Lord's faithful and he's just to forgive you your sins because you have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua the Messiah, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for your sins. If you know that, and you still can't get rid of this condemning heart, it's because you have actually promoted your heart or something in your heart over God. But if you see and agree with the scriptures that God is greater than your heart, if you treat treat God as greater than your heart, then you'll be able to put your heart at rest and then be able to move on right on through in prayer. But if you say, I can't help my guilt feelings. I have a bad self-image. I was mistreated. I had condemning parents. Just note you are ignoring what the word of God says. And you're therefore you're not innocent. You're not helpless. Because you're treating something as greater than God. Now, all professing believers intellectually understand this fact. That you're saved by grace, through faith, not not, not by works. You're saved because you have Yeshua as your Lord and your Savior. And he stands before the Father as your advocate. Now you say, well, I know all this. But when you then say, I still can't forgive myself, I want you to look more deeply at what you really believe. Because if this is you, there's something going on in your life that's a self-salvation project. There's something in your life that's, that's actually the real source of you feeling good about yourself. And it's more of a real source to you than God. It's your real Savior. It's a pseudo-Savior, but to you, it's, it's the real Savior. So, for example, some of you, when you commit a, a sexual sin, you can easily forgive yourself. Sometimes too easily. Uh, but when you blow up into something in your job or in your career, you can't forgive yourself. You say, I did such a stupid thing at work. Now I won't get this bonus or I won't get this promotion. Uh, I can never forgive myself. Uh, but, for, but for others of you, it's the exact opposite. Uh, your career me, me means very little to you. But, but, but you, you say, you know, uh, but, but then you say, well, I know God forgives me for this sexual sin, but I can't forgive myself. And for those of you in, in the second category, you've always felt good about yourself, perhaps superior to others, because you had self-control. And now when you've sinned in this area, you can never forgive yourself. But here's the point. If you can't forgive yourself, it's because there's some other thing in your life that's the real source of your importance and self-esteem and identity. And although you've never would admit this, it's more important to you than God. In spite of what you say with your lips, your real God is this other source of your identity and significance and self-worth. And it's this other God that's not forgiving you. So you may say, well, I'm saved by faith, by grace, through faith, not by works. 
But in your actual psychological functioning, the reason you feel good about yourself is because uh, you're, you're doing this and, and you're doing that and you're achieving this uh, and you're succeeding at that and, and you're avoiding this. But God is the only God who can forgive you. Every other God will refuse to forgive you. Uh, the God of career, uh, the God of moral decency, uh, the God of having a good family, uh, the God of reputation, the God of success. If there's anything else you're serving and you violate it, if there's any other standard that, that you're trying, in essence, to use to save yourself and you violate it, you'll say, I can't forgive myself. No, it's the God that you're serving that won't forgive you. No God but the real God, the God of the Bible, can forgive you. And if you can't forgive yourself, it's because there's some other God that you've promoted over this God, over the real God. Paul says in Romans 8.33, Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Then who's the one who condemns? No one. Messiah Yeshua, who died and was raised to life, he's at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for you. Paul's saying, if you're still condemning yourself, and you know what Yeshua has done for you, how dare you? You're promoting your heart, your standards, your little false gods over the one and only true God, the Holy One of Israel. If you can't forgive yourself, if you're wallowing in in guilt and and, and self-pity, yet claim to understand that Yeshua is your great advocate, you are neither helpless nor innocent. Repent. You must put your heart at rest. How do you do that? You believe the scriptures. 1 John 3, 20. If our hearts condemn us, we know God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Back in the days of the old Russian czars, one of the czars had a good friend who was a nobleman, uh, but he was dying. And on his deathbed, he said to the czar, can you please adopt my little son, uh, who otherwise is going to be an orphan because his mother's dead? Uh, the czar said, okay, and he adopted the son into his family. The czar gave the son everything. He grew up and he took a commission in, in the Russian army. But he was not a very decent guy. And he had little self-control, little integrity. Uh, he gambled. Uh, he, and to deal with his gambling habit, he started to embezzle money from his division uh, because he was the bookkeeper. And at a certain point, it got really bad. He'd been embezzling and embezzling, and he could only hide that for so long. And he realized his crime was about to come out. Any day now, it would be discovered. He'd be disgraced. He'd be court-martialed. He'd be cashiered from the army. He'd be probably imprisoned. So one night, he sat down uh, over the books. He looked at them. He realized there's no way out. So he drank as much as he possibly could to get as drunk as he could so he could then kill himself with his gun. But as it turns out, he got too drunk and he passed out. Now, the czar used to sometimes dress up as an enlisted man and secretly visit his troops. And he walked into this tent, and he saw the young man, his adopted son, passed out with his gun next to him. And he saw the books opened, and he realized everything that had happened. And he wrote a note and sealed it with the czar's seal and left. When the young man woke, he saw the note. And the note said this, I, the czar, will make good the debts in this book. I will pay them in full. And the young man realized that the czar had come and had seen everything. He knew it all. And yet the czar 
still loved him, and the young man was saved. Now, in the same way, Yeshua came to earth, dressed up like, like one of us, and he too sees everything. He knows about your heart more than you know about your own heart. He knows about all the, he knows about all the junk in your heart. And all your selfish actions uh, and deeds and thoughts and intentions and motivations. Do you have stuff in your heart that you're ashamed of? And stuff you don't even know is there. And you'll say, I didn't even know I was capable of that. If you're having trouble forgiving yourself now, what are you going to do later when all this other stuff comes out you didn't even know was there? There's all kinds of, of, of darkness in your heart that you haven't even seen. But God knows everything. And then he says in Romans 8, 1, But now there is no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. Yeshua, he's looked at your heart. He's looked into your heart. He has seen everything. And he has left a note and sealed it with the seal of his blood. And he says, I will pay your debt in full. If you don't make the Lord greater than your heart, you will live forever with a condemning heart. But you're not innocent. You're not helpless. You, do not, you don't have to live in guilt and condemnation. You can live in victory and newness of life and the power of Yeshua. Remember when the disciples, they were sent out to minister? I, I got some. Thank you. They were sent out to minister to the disciples. They came back all excited because they could cast out demons in Yeshua's name. Uh, with the power of Yeshua. We read this in Luke 10, 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And what does Yeshua say? Luke 10, verse 20. Rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but that your names are written in the book of life. He says, just know your names are written in heaven. Your names are inscribed on my heart. The great high priest says Yeshua, I stand before the Father. Yeshua says, I bear your name before the Father as your advocate. Know that your names are engraved on the palms of my hands. Yeshua says that to you today. And that is what gives you victory and transformation and newness of life and power. Yeshua says, casting out demons, that's nothing compared to the power of rejoicing and knowing that I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. When your heart condemns you, know that God is greater than your heart. He knows everything. He loves all who are his in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Let's Brian and Sue to come on up as well. Hallelujah. Father, we have a restless heart. We have a condemning heart. And it will remain restless until we find our rest in you. And will remain condemning until we are in you, Yeshua. Because only, and only in you is there no condemnation. So, Lord Yeshua, we ask you today, teach us to pray. This is the reflex of my heart, Lord, uh, to connect with you, Yeshua, uh, because we're made in your image. And we know that true prayer means entering into your presence, Lord, uh, to seek a personal one-on-one -on -one audience with you. Not just to give you a bunch of information, like sending a text, but to enter, but to enter into your life, uh, to commune with you, Yeshua, to deepen my relationship with you.
And once we understand that this, we want to run into your presence, Lord. We want to run into your arms, Yeshua, and to give you our full undivided attention and to have you, Lord, become the governing reality of my life. So, Lord Yeshua, help me to set my heart ever before you. I want your reality to, to fill my soul. I can come before you with my, my whole self. And, and, and Lord, today I give you permission to search me and test me and show me and convict me of my sins. I lay my life before you, Lord. And I stand on your word. You promise us that we confess our sins. You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Because you, Yeshua, are my advocate. Because you, Yeshua, are the atoning sacrifice for my sins. You are ever interceding at God's right hand before me. And Lord Yeshua, you have left me a note, sealed in your blood, saying, I have paid your debt in full. Thank you. Hallelujah, Yeshua. We pray this in all in your name. Shabbat Shalom. Amen. Thank you.